everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today you're in for a real treat. We've got five special podcasts coming at you all at once. The following audio was recorded by discipleship.org at Exponential's World Conference in Orlando in March of 2022, where we gave five track sessions at the event. So in the next five episodes, you're going to be hearing from Bobby Harrington of discipleship.org, Harry Brown from New Generations, Dan Lights with Bonhoeffer Project, Jim Putman from Real Life Ministries, and Paul Hugebart of Renew.org. I want to give you a heads up. Some of this audio has some weird skips here and there, but I'm going to go ahead and share these sessions with you because I believe they'll be helpful for both understanding international disciple-making movements and also for how these principles can apply in your ministry and in your church. All right, everybody, enough of me talking. Let's jump in and hear the episode. All right, welcome. Good to see you all here this morning. Um, we're thankful to be here in this workshop session sponsored by discipleship.org. Uh, I'm Paul Hugbar to be acting as the host morning. Uh, a minute to Bobby Harrington. Uh, and then also we'll have Harry Brown with us and, um, and Bobby will introduce him. We're thankful that you're here this morning to, to talk about disciple making movements. We, we want you to know about this. I believe this is an incredible, incredibly important conversation. In fact, I don't know that there's a more important conversation that the church could be having right now and in this moment, then what does it look like for the church even to try to incorporate some of these disciple-making movement principles? Really, that's why you're here is to hear about what's happening over there, I imagine, so that we can see some of that happen here as well. So again, welcome. Glad you're here with us this morning. I'm going to turn it over to Bobby. Thank you, Paul. Well, I'm really uh, grateful to have each of you here. Let me begin a bit about disciple-making movements. And then Harry Brown, who leads New Generations, is going to give you the uh, nine foundation stones of a disciple-making movement. So disciple-making movements are relatively new phenomena. Um, they've, uh, they've really only been around for multiple decades. Probably, Harry, I've been saying about 30 years. Does that sound about right? 30 years. But as of today, over 1% of the world's population is involved in a disciple-making movement. And that includes <clears throat> 2 to 3% of the people in China uh, and India and parts of Africa and other places around the world. Harry, uh, with new generations, in the last 17 years, there are over uh, 2 million baptisms. I'm going to get Harry to, to give you some of the metrics on their movement Around the world, there are over 1,400 disciple-making movements. So these movements are the rapid expansion, and to, the, to my language here, of disciples who make disciples who plant churches that make disciples that plant churches that make more disciples. And so this rapid disciple-making uh, is a, a wonderful phenomenon, but amongst Native people in North America— uh, it has yet to take hold, and so one of the reasons you're probably here is to come to find out people making movements. And I can't think of anybody who's more strategically gifted to understand and explain these movements than Harry Brown. So uh, if you would please join me in welcoming Harry. And Harry, if you will, tell us a little bit just as you're beginning, just some metrics so that people... Uh, some of the stuff that God's doing through the ministry. 
Sure. Uh, it's good to be with you folks. And just to let you know, we're going to have Q&A uh, after some time of PowerPoint. So, you know, get your and interact on anything. A couple of introductory things is, um, one, I always tell people when I'm standing up front, whatever you hear, enjoy the chicken and spit out the bones. Is nobody has the last word on anything. And when we look up here and we say nine foundation stones, that's my idea. You know, it's not like there's nine sacred things in Scripture that says these are the elements of movement. So, you know, uh, this is my idea, and so you can take it for what it's worth. Uh, also, in terms of disciple-making movements, that term is used broadly for things these days, and people have different definitions for what is a movement. There's no sacred definition, so you, you like ours, great. You don't like ours, that's fine. So I don't want to give you the idea that um, this is the only thing. So we define a movement as at least 100 new churches that have multiplied. That's our uh, metric on that. Uh, right now, in terms of what God has us doing, the, the span is 55 and over 860 people groups. Used to call them tribes. It could be the ABC tribe from over there and the XYZ tribe from over here. So 860 of those. And then we have 60 or so urban engagements. So we're, we're trying to make movements happen in Nairobi, Kenya, or Lagos, Nigeria. It's also in London, England, in Australia, in Glasgow, Scotland, in Berlin, Germany. So the point of that is it's not just a third world or developing world or global south or whatever you want kind of phenomenon. It's happening in other places. We also are engaged in a large number of what we call population segments. So we define a population segment as something like street kids, prisoners, prostitutes, gang members, slum dwellers, and so forth. Things like that is clearly not a people group. And to say it's urban is just way too broad and fuzzy. So we're looking at creating movements inside of those kinds of population segments. So what is God doing so far? And the, the emphasis is... Here's what God is doing. I'm going to give you a quick uh, African parable. This is the short version. To do it right, you've got to sit around the fire and everybody's drinking something and you know, get the short version. If you have the long version, you can get me on Zoom and we'll do that. So here, here's the African parable. There's an ant who is on a journey and he gets to a raging river and he can't cross. So an elephant comes along and he asks the elephant, will you take me across? The elephant says, no problem. So the ant scurries up his leg, gets on back of his back, raging river, and is deterred by all the, the water and the current because of his great strength. But the ant is scared spitless. He's afraid the splash is going to take him off, you know. A big drop gets him. So he scoots up to the head in the tip of the trunk, and the elephant powers through, gets to the other side, and the ant cries out in jubilation, we did it! We did it together! So that's the elephant and we're the ant. We are working together on this, but let's keep perspective on where the source is. It's God who is moving. So what is God doing? In terms of numbers, and numbers don't tell the whole story, God has raised up 90,000 plus churches that encompass over 2 million new followers of Jesus. And 149 movements that we're tracking. So that definition, 100 churches that are new, that have multiplied to four generations. So there's 149 of those. And six of them are now past 30 generations of churches planting churches planting churches. Now, why is that important? Not because it's a big number, 
but because we don't have any money management past generation five, six, seven, something right in there. So if it's going to have this chain reaction that keeps going, and here's a key phrase, without you. Because I tell people, if you can't put the phrase without you into what you're talking about, you're not having a Great Commission conversation. It may be wonderful. But if you're going to see the Great Commission accomplished, we have to be the ones who catalyze something that don't depend on us for it to keep going. So the idea of um, movements that have 30 or so generations is representative of what we want to see God do in every segment everywhere. So our vision statement says catalyzing movements everywhere. Now, when we say catalyze, it's the difference between what you do and what you make happen. So we're very much on the catalyze side, but we also are very much on the do side. The question is ratio. And the reason we have a do side is four basic reasons. One is credibility. We haven't just been writing books about this. We actually have dirt under our fingernails. The second is <clears throat> that this is your learning laboratory. Things evolve and change. And I talked about a, a wide dispersion, <clears throat> dispersion of different kinds of audiences, uh, the people that you're working with. And there is no cookie cutter out there. There's no one size fits all. So you have to have a learning laboratory to keep uh, making things correct to the context. Then the third thing is, we have to have a farm system. And the farm system means you're training uh, up coaches who you can help embed in other organizations. Where are they going to come from? Well, they're going to come up through the farm system. It's a baseball term. You know, you got people coming up through the ranks so that they can be helpful to somebody else. Then the fourth thing is pioneer places where the gospel's never been or has never flourished. That means the gospel's been a lot of places where it hasn't taken root and taken off. So that's kind of the characterization. Um, also, I think it's important for you to know that we're seeing God do these things in a wide variety of contexts. So you heard about people, groups, and, and uh, countries, but it's also happening between rural and urban. It's happening with literate and illiterate. It's happening in places of persecution and places of freedom. It's happening among Muslims. It's happening among Hindus. It's happening among Buddhists. It's happening among animists. What is the point of that? It appears to us that God is doing something that has principles that can apply anywhere. And so with that, I will tell you that since the focus of our gathering is disciple-making movements in North America, I personally am a table-pounding, passionate believer that it can and it will happen here. So with that belief, I want to find out who I'm talking to. How many of you lead churches? Okay. How many of you lead organizations? How many of you work inside either churches or organizations? Okay. So that's basically who we are. I'm not saying that this is for everybody, but for those who want to see movements happen. And I describe them as chain reacting disciples that results in cascades of churches planting churches. From my perspective, if that's what you want to have happen, these nine things we're talking about. So that's the backdrop, that's the why behind it. So with that, we're going to dive in. Okay, there's your tic-tac-toe grid. We just juiced it up with a little far away. So the, the first element, the first cornerstone is prayer. Now, that might go as a, yeah, we know that. 
I don't doubt that we'll know that. The question is, how are we doing with it? Now, Jesus said <laughs> really clearly, John 15, apart from me, you cannot do anything. Well, if that's true, how are we going to respond to that? I know everybody prays. That's not the point. Do we pray as if we really believe that we're in a war and that spiritual war cannot be won by all of the strategies, all the systems, all the budgets, all the programs, all of that horsepower? It cannot be won unless spiritual strongholds are broken. I believe that. And so I always say the heavy lifting to get the job done is in the heavenlies. The heavy lifting's in the heavenlies. And what I... I'm always looking for when people are telling me how they're trying to get their job done, whatever they define their job is. What, what is the, the ratio of the strategy, budget, the people time, whatever, relative to the prayer? How, how does the prayer side of that stack up? And I'm a big proponent of prayer mobilization, investing in prayer, etc. And I would say that if it's truly a value, what you value, not statements above the door that inspire people, and we paid some marketing firm way too much money, you know, so that as everybody enters and exits, they will be encouraged to press on. Yeah, we all have that, right? What you really value is what you invest in. That's time and money. Check your calendar. Check. It's what you measure and what you celebrate. So prayer is important that it's getting investment, that it's being measured, and that it's being celebrated. So just on the celebration, how often do we ask the, the question, how is our prayer um, base going, and what is it producing? And that's something I believe should be up front, that whenever we're talking about whatever God is among us, we ought to be including, and here's what God is doing through prayer. We've seen the cause and effect. We see the connection. We know that God's on the move because we asked and he answered. That kind of thing. So in, in our situation, that's time and money and so forth. We do measure and we do celebrate it. And I can tell you, and I say this with awe because it has very little to do with me, that we now have a base of dedicated intercessors that's well over 100,000 people. And I don't mean people who signed up online to pray. I mean people who have given part of the enterprise. Those people have regiments in prayer and fasting that I can describe to you because I've seen them, but I could not do what they're doing. I'll give you a flavor of what they're doing in West Africa, which is actually where Shadonke Johnson is, and actually he is the prayer mobilizer that has made this possible. So I wish he was here to tell you himself. Shadanke at the, the prayer house and with the intercessors, he was describing to me, what, what is the, the commitment that people make? He said, well, we, we pray and fast on Wednesdays. Okay? He said, we pray and fast on the first three days of every month. Well, we also pray and fast on the first three days of the year. So that means that month is double. Of a slice of a 24-7 clock. You're going to pray from 2 to 3 in the morning. You're going to pray from 3 to 4. You're going to pray from 4 to 5 and so forth. And we're going to do it every day. So I own that slice of the clock. It doesn't matter what else has happened. I'll be praying then. Then we have a half-night prayer per month. We have a full-night prayer per month. And we have fast up to 21 days. I had to sit down. I, I, I honestly, I cannot imagine that happening. But I know that's what they do. And so 
when we talk about great breakthroughs and what God is doing, I'm going to point back to the first cornerstone being prayer. The investment in intercession that makes these things possible. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, so what's our next one? Next cornerstone is about discovery. How many of you are familiar with Discovery Bible Study? Okay, a few. So the Discovery Bible Study process, this will be the short version, is you're going to be getting lost people into the Word of God. And you're going to be asking them four basic questions. What does it say in this passage? What does it mean? What would you do in obedience to this? And who can you tell? So this idea of people discovering who God is who they are in relationship to God to do and who God wants them to be is a process that they learn step by step as they engage with the Word of God. Now, usually in the prayer part, I put in a strategic framework of prayer. And if you're not familiar with Discovery Bible Study, I have to back up just a half a step and tell you, okay, why would these lost people be getting into the Word of God? That doesn't seem typical. When I ask lost people if they want to read the Bible, they kind of say, you're nuts right? So this is the quick version of the strategic frame with four sides. The first one is draw, the word draw. And the drop there is Jesus said, if the Father's not drawing them, they're not coming. That's a full stop situation. You have cause and effect. No draw, no come. Okay, so what do you want to do prayer-wise? Pray the Father will be drawing them. Okay, what's the second side? You want to bind. Jesus said, you don't tie up the strong man, you cannot steal his stuff. Okay, if that's the reality, again, full stop, they're not going to be coming unless the strong man is tied up. Then we pray to bind the strong man. Third side is break. Because the devil has got his finger in everybody's belt loop on something. He's trying to read the will of God revealed in the Word of God. So you have to break those strongholds so the captives can be set free. So the fourth side of this thing is open. Open the mind, because the God of this world blinds the mind. What happens when that is true, spiritual things seem like stupid. People say, I'm not interested in that. That's crazy. Why would I give my life to that? Why would I change? Whatever. That's the devil talking through a foggy windshield for people, where they just don't see it until the mind is open. They can't make that step. So why would people in Discovery Bible Study, lost, be willing to put their nose in the Word of God and say, here's what it means, here's what I will do. 
is becoming, and the strongholds have been broken. So that process of discovery Bible study, please understand this, is not anti-teaching in any way, shape, or form. The gift of teaching is a gift of God, is for the building up of the body of Christ. I describe it as illumination and lift. Illumination means there's a lot of stuff that's just not on the surface. You can't just go there and just see it. So God gifts people to illuminate it for you. And lift is about what do you do that makes a difference. They help you understand the action component of the information you just got. So it's not anti-teaching. What is it? This is not about theology. It's about strategy. You want to root a DNA of personal discovery in the Word of God to where it becomes a lifestyle so that no matter where you go and who, you, who you're and what you do, it's part of your lifestyle to be in the Word of God, expecting Him to speak to you and expecting to obey what He says. That process is what we want to see in every person who claims the name of Christ. So this idea of discovery is a cornerstone in a process that's going with a very long tail. You know, think that 30 generations. We want to make sure that no matter where you slice the slice, and we want to make sure that everybody has that DNA of personal discovery in the Word of God. Okay, here's the next one, and I already gave a hint. It's obedience. So it's not just about what you know, it's about what you do. Now, what happens when you know a lot and you don't do what you know you should? You get Pharisees. They knew all this stuff. They spent their whole life acquiring spiritual knowledge. And they didn't do what they were supposed to do with it. And we all know what Jesus said about that. It was unpleasant. <laughs> that process there, how can you do if you don't know? Of course you have to know. But it's the knowledge apart from the obedience that's the problem. The, the enemy can't keep us out of the word to keep us from applying the word because then there's no benefit to it, right? So this idea of obedience, it, it comes down to this is God's love language. Your obedience is God's love language. How do we know that? What did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's John 14. If you love me, cause and effect, obedience will be the outcome. So if you look into your own life or anybody else's, and you don't see obedience, that you know there's not a love that is driving the behavior. So this idea of rooting DNA of obedience to the will of God revealed in the Word of God is a cornerstone in the disciple-making. Okay, so we all know what James says, 1.22, be doers of the Word, not hearers. Who can finish that sentence? Who deceive doers, not hearers, and the reason you need to be a doer is so not you're, de you're not deceiving yourself that somehow you have gained some spiritual benefit out of that knowledge without the doing. So to avoid being deceived that you now have made progress, you have to put in action what God has revealed to you. Okay, the fourth cornerstone in this process is replication. Now, I want to make a distinction for you. You probably just heard the word multiplication. That's not what I said. Replication. So what is the nuance here? Multiplication is good. Jesus said, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. Though God is interested in much fruit. 
How does that phrase continue? And that fruit should remain. There needs to be a maturity there, a stability there. Now, the idea of replication is, it's not just the numbers grew, it's a process that came with it. And you're thinking now, just think 30 generations, what do you want to see down at generation 25? Do you want to see them repeating a process that got the same result, or you just want to be able to count hands that were raised? My vote is you want to see the process go with them, and the only way to do that is to make sure it's very clear that it's what we call simple, sustainable, and if that's not true, then it can't go long-term down these chain reactions that you want to see. So this idea is not just multiply the numbers and find success. It's also check and see if the elements are there to make sure that it can keep going. And what's the phrase? Without you. If it can keep going without you. Your four cornerstones. Let's fill in a little bit here. The next one says ordinary people. Here's a problem that the West has that's a really big deal. I don't think we've really gotten honest with it, and so I think we should. We think bigger is better. Here's the way I look at it. Big bows and little wins. So one of the realities is hurricanes and earthquakes get all the press, but termites do all the damage. You know, just as a comparison, the, the hurricane, the earthquake that hits, big sensational front page, you know, and of course, it is a big deal. But by comparison to the damage that those little munchers are doing every day in your house, it pales in comparison. The same is true that ants move more than elephants. Now, the elephant's impressive because he can go out there and he can pick up a big something and move it over there. The reason that ants can move more than elephants is there's a whole lot of them and they're always working all the time, working on little things. It's incredible. You know what Proverbs says, go to the ant and be wise as you observe their ways. They don't have a king who directs them and tells them what to do. They know what to do and they all do it all the time. It's amazing. If the body of Christ looked like ants, where we knew what to do, and we all took our peace and made it happen every day, the world would be a different place. It is incredible how powerful that is to have it decentralized. Now, there's reasons for organizations or churches. I'm an organization guy. I, I'm currently in year 47 of my ministry. I understand the role for us, so I'm not knocking organized anything. At the same time, I also understand that I am not the centerpiece of God's strategy. I'm the complement. The centerpiece is Joe and Sally Smith, ordinary people. They are the ones who have to take ownership of it because until they do, we cannot win. And here's your frame of reference in winning and losing. 1 Corinthians 9.24, run to win. Full stop. God is saying... You have to understand the context. You have to understand the problem. You have to create the strategies. That can, and I'm not satisfied with anything less. So run to win means, okay, what's the size of the problem? Somewhere between five and six billion people are lost. They disagree. It's a big number. Where, where are they at? They're everywhere. Okay? How would you characterize them? 
Well, they're very dispersed. We know that. They're everywhere. They're very diverse, which means no one size fits all. And they're very difficult, because if it was easy, it would be done. So against that backdrop, you as the strategist, what are you going to do? Well, if you do not have Joe and Sally Smith in the equation, you're not going to win. There's just no way that the number of professionals, cost of buildings, the inflexibility of buildings, and all that other stuff can ever magnify to the place where we can start talking honestly about five to six billion people. So that's the bright side. You can't win without them, but with them, you cannot lose. And here's what I mean by that. What's the formula to create, complete the Great Commission? This is it. You won't have to write it down. You'll remember it. Two plus two equals four. So they tell us there's two billion Christians in the world, right? If each one of those Christians made one disciple in one year, not a hundred, don't have to be a superstar, if each one made one, two would become four. You guys are good at math. And guess what happens in year two? Four would become eight, and we live in a, in a world with seven plus billion population. Now, you can say, oh yeah, but you got to divide by something because this would happen and that would happen and something else would go on. Some people don't get it, some people... Print remains. All you did is add a few years on. It doesn't matter what you divided by. This is God's idea. How do we know that? Because the last thing he said to us before he took off was, I want you to go everywhere, and as you go, I want you to make disciples and teach them to obey everything. Okay, if that becomes true, then they, obey. they will get other people to obey everything, and the flywheel will start to turn, and it will start to spread out. It'll get bigger, and guess what? It also holds the magic key. It cannot only get bigger, it can get everywhere. How's that? Because the gospel goes viral. We often don't think of what viral means. We get COVID viral, we get internet viral. Let's put it into gospel viral. When it leaves you, it doesn't stay like you. That's how your crazy cat video can get to China. It's because everybody knows somebody you don't. So to give it to somebody who cross-connects in another circle of influence, and they are faithful to obey the command to teach others to obey everything, they will repeat the process in their interlocking circles. of Because God has given us a totally interrelated world. Everything connects to something, but not through you. The idea becomes, okay, they will open up other segments of society. So that when we talk about, this is the word that we use so often that means nothing, we're going to reach X, the city, we're going to reach the country, whatever. Nobody has any idea what reach means. Does that mean they got exposed to it? Does that mean that they understood it? Does it mean they responded to it? It doesn't mean I know that they passed it on. It means. But now we can say, okay, it's realistically possible because ordinary people get the idea of them to make disciples who repeat the process in their own circles of, usually we say influence, let's say ownership. What I decide before God that he gave me that I will bring the kingdom of God into. Then the whole has changed. Everything is different. All the equations are now new. So I have this thing I like to do. I've been around the world many times, 85 different countries, something like that. And I, I like to talk to somebody who's just the ordinary person, wherever they are. Their version of Joe and Sally Smith. Okay? The primary reason 
that God left you on this earth after he saved you. You know what I'm listening for? I don't care what the words are. I'm listening for the message to bring the kingdom of God into my circle of influence. That's here. That's what I'm about. That's my identity. Oh, yeah, I happen to work over here. I happen to speak this language, and I live in this country. But my identity, who I am, my reason for being, I'm going to bring the kingdom of God into my circle of influence. Whoa! New day. Now, let's look at it from the other side. If you were the devil, and you called in all the senior demons, and you said, guys... I want to find out what you all think is the best way to defeat that enemy, Jesus. Some guy pops up and says, we need to attack the megachurch. Hmm, oh, well. We, we need to make sure there's no more Christian politicians. Hmm, We need to make sure that ordinary people don't get the idea that God disciples who will repeat the process. The enemy of our souls is now shaking. Because when ordinary people get the idea that the Spirit of God will help them do what Jesus asked them to do, and they will be able to create people who choose to obey and get their friends and family to do the same, the game's over. That's the fulcrum that changes everything. And again, I'm not knocking what all of us do in an organized fashion. I'm just saying that's the complement to the core strategy of ordinary people. Okay, on here says constant, it says coaching, but I add in constant coaching. Why is that? It doesn't matter what you're trying to teach somebody. Could be auto mechanics, could be brain surgery, could be computer programming, just like a staircase. You gotta learn something, you gotta practice. You gotta learn, practice, learn, practice, learn, practice. That's how people are able to understand, absorb, and apply and eventually transfer, which is what chain reactions are all about. In that process, if you take the typical approach of a trainer, which means I will tell you what I know, I will check the box and say I have completed my mission, then you exit the equation. So I'm not knocking training, we do a ton of training. The question is, how do you get them from some base of knowledge into some impact that makes a difference and can transfer to the next generation. My answer to that is the coaching staircase. So learn, practice, learn, practice. But you got to get to the top stair, right? So what is the top stair so you're not just on an escalator? The top stair can do it effectively and they're transferring it with you. So let's think about roles. My role is now complete. So you don't have to stay in one stream vigil forever. You've got a goal in mind, and you're working towards that. Okay? So we're going to keep learning and practicing, and we're going to get better every day, and we're going to arrive at some place where you can do this well and you to people I don't know. We good? That's what we're after. So that's your idea of constant coaching. Here's your next one. Leadership development. Chain reactions, right? I told you about we have some chains that are 30 generations long. May God's grace may they be 300 generations long, and I'll never live to see it. What do you need at every of a generational chain? You need a quality leader. If you don't have a quality leader at each link of a generational chain, the chain is broken and you're out of the movement business. That's just how it is. And you can't microwave leaders. 
You have to grow them up. They've got to climb the staircase with you. That takes time. And when you see explosive growth that's going viral, you better have your leadership development act together or else it's going to get out there and it's going to fade to gray. So this is a design feature that if you are the designer or if you're the executor, you have to make sure this is in the mix and that it's always present and always transferred because as soon as that breaks down, the chain's broken and is lost. So the idea of leadership development is a really big deal. And there's a real tendency in all of us, and I confess I have it. We, we want things to us. Feeding the ego, that's in there. It's not just feeding the ego, it's I think I know what the answer is. And so, in a spirit of service, I want to give you the answer. But if I make that the center of the equation, where's that going to go long term? It's still tethered to me, and as long as it's tethered to me, you can kiss movements goodbye. You have to raise up those early and often who can understand it, they can apply it, and they can transfer it. And if you don't, well, you just left business. Here's your last one. Constant evaluation. Nuanced word, I didn't say measurement. Why didn't I say measurement? Because it's not just about quantity. It's also about quality. Why? Because when, when Jesus said, you prove my disciples, and that fruit should remain. That's not a binary choice. You can't have growth without maturity, and I know there's a big fight and there's polarization. Some people are, we want to see that they're fully mature. That's not a binary choice. We do not have the luxury of choosing that. It has to be both, and we as leaders have to make sure that it's true. That's it. So the idea of the evaluation is not just the Proverbs 27, know well the condition of the flock. It's not just about numbers. It's about lifestyles. You have to be able to certify that somebody has a lifestyle of prayer. They have a lifestyle of obedience. They have a lifestyle of replication. They have a lifestyle of X, Y, and Z. Because if they don't, when it leaves you, it's going to fade to gray. You're now talking, this is DNA stuff. This is the kind of thing good fathers create good sons who become good fathers, good mothers, good daughters. You don't have the luxury as a parent to say, well, hey, you're getting A-plus grades here, but you're addicted to drugs, so I guess one out of two isn't that bad. You don't have that luxury. You care about all facets of your kids, right? And you have to make sure they have what they need in the things that are essential. Now, they're going to do it differently than you. That's not the point. That's a given. But there, you have to take it to it's deep in their soul. And if you're not checking and you don't know, well, you can't rise in a chain reaction. Constant evaluation. In, in our situation, just as an illustration, we have the, the field leadership is all in a cascade, so there's always checking between the tiers of the cascade. Then there's a whole other department, division, whatever, that has a dozen people in it who his sole role is to make sure not just the numbers are correct, but that the insight that is being derived from the information we're gathering can be turned into actionable intelligence that then what we call shepherding coaches can be able to help the field leaders understand wandering this way or falling off that way. They can make sure the intervention is early and is adequate to be able to see these things stay on track. So there's a lot of time and effort that goes in that, both in response to what the uh, information is telling us. So I'm a big fan of paying attention to what's going on 
because there's a risk in all of us of being seduced by success. Something good and big happened, that's true, and it's great, and there's nothing not to like, but it's not the end of the story. There's other things to be looking at, and my advocacy is you pay attention to them every day. So last one, the centerpiece. What is your motivation? It has to be love. And the first time I shared that with somebody, they said, uh, yeah, like, you know, I know that. So, okay, well, in the ministries that you know, in your own ministry, in your own self, is that the daily driving motivation? Is that the passion that's burning bright? That Jesus said, if you love me, you will? Is it lapsing into one of these sub-motivations? Are you doing it out of duty? Because you're supposed to? Are you doing it out of fear? If I don't, I'll get punished. You're doing it for reward. If I do it, I'll get something out of it. That stuff creeps in. And it's one of these things you have to constantly defend. If you don't constantly defend it, there's no cruise control on this. It's not, yeah, I love God who saved my soul and he's blessed me and so forth. That, that was done. That doesn't tell you about five years down the road or 10 years down the road or whatever else. So I'm going to leave you with this for the presentation time, and then we're going to have the talk time. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's referred to as the Shema. It's a cornerstone of what the Orthodox Jew not only believed, but Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, and teach it to your son and to your grandson. And then do it every day in every way. When they lie down, when they stand, when they walk in the way, put it on the back of their hand, put it in the center of their head, stick it on the doorpost, put it on the gate. What are they saying? You have to constantly reinforce that their actions of obedience are rooted in love. Because if they're not, everything starts to drift, it gets calcified, everything loses its fire, and you can forget about generations down the road. Because duty, fear, or reward are not going to drive people to keep this process going without you. You have to exit the equation and that passion for Jesus at the center where it's that flame is burning bright every day. Where that has been released and the flame is full. That's what has to happen. I put it at the center of these nine what I call foundation stones because it's the greatest risk we have is that that wanes and everything else becomes a formula. Hi, it's Jason Henderson here as a sponsor from Renew.org. I wanted to invite you to not only attend Discipleship.org's National Disciple Making Forum, but come one day early for the Renew.org Network National Gathering. It's October 4th from 12.30 to 8.30 p.m., so the afternoon and evening you can travel early that day. You'll get to hear from Paul Hugabart, Jim Putman, Shadonke Johnson, and other well-known disciple makers. They'll speak on our theme, Real Life Theology Conversations. That's the theology we need for real life and the relationships and conversations, the hard conversations that it takes in today's cultural reality to make disciples. There's special pricing available. You're going to want the best price to come to both Discipleship.org's National Disciple Making Forum as well as Renew.org's National Gathering. Go to Renew.org forward slash events for that combo ticket. That's the best price to both events, the combo ticket. 
Again, that's R-E-N-E-W dot O-R-G forward slash events. Renew.org forward slash events. We'll see you there. So, uh, Harry, I, I have a question to begin with and an opportunity to ask for questions. So the first, um, I'm, I'm going to uh, try to describe my understanding of how uh, a disciple-making movement might work. Describe, and I want you to mm-hmm. like correct it or whatever, okay? Yeah, there, how's that? <laughs> so I want to take these nine foundation stones that Harry has described and try to make them as black and white as possible. So let's say <coughs> that there's a community, uh, and it's we're going to make it, um, I'm, since I'm from the Nashville area, let's make it Nashville. And uh, there's an area where a lot of uh, young couples have moved in. It's kind of a, a hip area in downtown Nashville that's everything's being rebuilt and um especially uh, young adults were moving in there. And let's say that we were praying and we felt like God wanted us to start a disciple-making movement there in my mm-hmm. make-believe story. Mm-hmm. So we would start by um, access, which is to express the love of Jesus. So let's, uh, let's say that we would uh, start um, just because it's such a huge need Something like, say, uh, free financial planning or advice or classes. We just start doing that in the community. It's an access ministry. That's a big need. So we start building relationships with people around that. Then the next step, after being present and with an access ministry, we would have been praying for a person of peace. And this is a person who's naturally connected into the community, and they care about us and they're going to introduce people to us. So through this person of peace that God raises up, we would start a discovery Bible study. And uh, uh, the person of peace would bring people to the discovery Bible study. And uh, as we went through the discovery Bible study, uh, there's a couple of key parts in a discovery Bible study. One is, uh, as you're looking at the Bible, and everybody's an equal, just looking at the text, there's some passages that we look at and we realize, well, we have these I will statements. In other words, the passage teaches this and I will. We declare I will. And uh, also there'll be things in there that we want to share with others. So in this Bible study of young adults that this person of peace uh, who's got access to them brings them in and there's just great fruit going on um, every week. The Bible study is growing and pretty soon we need people making the decisions. There's baptisms. Everybody's excited. And the Discovery Bible study is growing. And the next thing we know, well, we're at a point where we can actually, uh, some of the people who've been in it, who love it so much, they want to go ahead and start another one. And so they start another one. And all this is motivated by love. It's motivated by discovery. And uh, right away, we're starting in with the replication. Am I doing okay so far? Generally speaking, yes. When you started out, I kind of went like this to the crowd because you said, we're going to start with access ministry, and we're going to start with putting our prayer base in place. Yes, that's the first part, and I've <laughs> so, neglected to mention um, that. 
Yeah, but you, you did a, a very good job. So the idea, certainly you've got to have the prayer base in place for all the reasons we talked about. Then uh, the, the idea of connecting in the community, like it, you can call it whatever it is. You're looking for relationships and a natural way to connect to people. In that, as Bobby said, you're looking for the characteristics of a person of peace. Two, they have spiritual interest, the Father's drawing them, and they have community influence. The idea here is they're going to unlock the door so you don't have to kick it down. A lot of well-intentioned mission stuff where we've kicked the door down and said, man, you're intruding. But we're intruding with a really noble motive. And they said, eh, we're not interested. I actually have, have had that experience where, I'll, I'll tell you a quick aside here. So uh, I was serving for a time with a ministry that was focused on disadvantaged people. We were pioneering in the city of Philadelphia. And this street is called Broad Street. And we set up shop over here, and we were handing out clothes and kids with tutoring and yada, yada, yada. And um, the folks from over there said, we're going to come and we're going to burn down your building. <laughs> well, what, what don't you like? Didn't ask us. This one over here, this is the leader of the community. You never talk to him. And all of your stuff is all about you. It's not for us because we didn't help shape it. And it's like, okay, life lesson for me. So the person of peace is going to be somebody who is spiritually interested. They're going to be connected in the community to other people. And they're going to be asking other spiritually interested people, and here's another key, who have relationship with each other. You're not trying to form a group out of diverse people who happen to be in the same geography. You're looking for people who have something already. And this is really important because we're going to journey together. And you don't journey together and get honest about things like I'll obey something if you already don't have a relationship. So you're looking for an affinity. That affinity is something where they can walk together, as you said, that something can spread from there to the next one. And that's where coaching has to kick in because who's going to be uh, providing in the family as it starts to break and go like this? But... I'm just trying to create a really concrete picture for you. By the way, the clipboard is being passed around. Uh, if you would like disciple-making information on, on lots of things, discipleship.org aggregates uh, disciple-making materials. Most of it's for free uh, from a diverse network of disciple-making organizations. We try to bring together the leading disciple-making organizations, networks, leaders, speakers, and writers and uh, so the clipboard's going around in case you'd like information. By the way, on your seat, there's also a flyer. Uh, on the one side, it gives you all the resources we have. And on the other side is our National Disciple Making Forum this fall in Nashville. And we'd love for you to attend. So let me keep developing then, just so you can see sequentially as concretely as I can make it what Harry's talking about. So again, first you start with a prayer base. He's right. Then it's about expressing love for people and building relationships by addressing their area of need. Um, in, in, it's often uh, called the incarnation process where Jesus came into our world. So of this community of people that we want to reach. Then we're, um, because God's given us a person of three Bible studies, the discovery Bible studies are super effective because they're causing people to ask they can obey this teaching and with whom they can share this teaching. So then the, the Discovery Bible becoming effective with baptisms uh, becomes two Discovery Bible studies. And then before long, those two become actually four because through the prayer, God's doing miracles. We're seeing lots of people 
joining this. And at what point, Harry, when you've got four Discovery Bible studies, will you start to form a church? Oh, uh, because it's not about the magnitude of how many Discovery groups. It's about each individual one. Where are they at in the Discovery process of understanding what it means to be a Fellowship of Christ followers? So if this is X, Y, you're down here, you know nothing, you're, you're on a journey. And the first uh, stop on the journey is salvation. They have to discover, I'm a sinner and he's a savior. What am I going to do about that? Then you have to discover the obedience of baptism. Now you're ready to start. The coach is giving compass headings in scripture. What is a fellowship of Christ followers of a church? And what does it look like? What does it do? Who helps make it go? That kind of thing are things that they're going to be discovering because the coach is directing them. So the four may be at the same place at once. They may take, one takes longer than the other. It's, it's never a formula. It's always case by case. And any coach that uses a formula that says it's going to be here at a certain place in time is going to miss. Okay, good. So um, would you add anything to our description then? There's multiple discovery bottoms. People are being formed uh, into a church uh, that's going to be coached by the leaders who are doing this. Is there anything else just in terms of getting really concrete and sequential that you'd want to describe? I think that's great for now. And most of what we talked a bit about today is assuming that stuff is there and it's starting to go like this, you need the other pieces in the puzzle. You expect this thing is going to start going viral. It's everywhere, so it's going to be complex. It's going to take some differences in how you approach it, yada, yada, yada. You're going to have to start figuring out how to evaluate. You have to understand the leadership development, etc. All of this stuff is believing it's going to go like that, and I want to be ready. We have a few minutes uh, for questions, so I'm going to walk down the aisle here, and if you want to raise Someone your hand, back. I'll try to get to you. Son, back right? Yes. <clears throat> So all the, the replication and the evaluation, the DNA stuff, how do you do that? What does that look like on a weekly basis? Listening to this discipleship making, if it's blowing up and the flywheel's spinning and things are replicating, um, at what point is it, like how do you, are the models for like a movement where things are happening that you're not, how do you keep the DNA going? Sure. Um, so as you read the book of Acts, you realize there's all kinds of things that nobody was in control of. It, it's going to happen. You want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep up with it. But there's, there's no way if it's doing what it's designed to do, you can be in front of the train on everything. So with that being a reality, you want to make sure you're building in the stuff that you know is going to be needed. And part of that you know, evaluation question comes out of a constant contact with us. Is this happening? So forth. If, if that's some sort of a every three month thing, you're going to be behind the curve. So it has to be built in. Same with leadership development. You may be a rookie now, but you're a little bit ahead of the, the guy behind. So you're reaching ahead to whoever was helping you and reaching back over here. And it, it's kind of like um, the Amway cascade, if you're familiar with that. And some people hate that illustration, they throw rocks and things. The idea is that you're in a band here. Somebody recruited you, and what do, they get? What do you get from them? You get the training, you get the supplies, you get the coaching, you get the encouragement, you get the phone a friend. What are you supposed to do for him? It's all the same stuff. So it's, it's, it's in these bands that are interlocked so on a regular basis. 
expecting that it's going to keep going like this, so you're getting ready for it to go like that. What another question here? So what are some of the challenges that you've seen or experienced in, in getting developed, especially for churches that are just taking this from the ground, you know, that, that that's not something they have in place. What are some of the challenges that you've seen them experience through this? Yeah, uh, some, some of the challenges are um, they're trying to bake a cake without all the ingredients. If, in fact, you want to go this direction, it's typically a pretty big shift. Sometimes it's a seismic shift. So it's really important to be thinking it through. How is this going to affect the various populations in my church or my ministry? What's it going to look like in terms of changed roles? What's it going to look like in terms of how we invest money, et cetera, et cetera? A lot of thinking, a lot of preparation, because if you go ready, fire, aim on this stuff, you're going to find yourself balled up with some stuff. So the, the, the magnitude of the shawl requires a lot of thinking and preparation and usually small steps. It's not the kind of thing you just start from here and say, well, let's leap to the top of the mountain. Let me, let me just say that if you're interested in that PowerPoint presentation, it's only two slides. Uh, my email's up here, and there's also a movementprayer.org website up here if you're interested in the tools that they have. So you're welcome to that if you want it. Thank you all for being with us. Hey, I just wanted to jump on here and say thank you so much for listening and to encourage you to go ahead and stick around and listen to the next episode that we recorded from the Exponential Conference from this year. I've got links in the show notes for both the Renew Gathering and the Discipleship.org forum so that you can get a head start on purchasing your tickets. And I look forward to seeing you at both events. All right, everybody, I hope that you enjoyed the episode and I hope you have a great day. Bye.